Thanks for tuning into the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Uh, I thought I'd start today with a a bit of a confession. The confession is this. Um, I don't love Christian bumper stickers. And it's not just because like my driving can't be trusted to have like the brand on the back of the car. That's why I don't have a bridge one right now because I can't be trusted with <laughs> that kind of an association. And uh, there's so many to choose from, but here, here are just a couple of my favorite Christian bumper stickers. You ready? Here's one. Uh, I bet Jesus would have used his turn signal. <laughs> like <laughs> passive aggressive much. I'm thinking about designing my own that says, uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Your car doesn't have to use your signal. Anyone, anyone, I'll be selling them in the lobby after. Okay, great. Applause. All right. We're off to a good start. Here's another one that I don't love. Um, are you following Jesus this close? Has that ever worked? Has anyone ever been like riding behind someone else? Like, I'm not. And they pull over and they repent right there and surrender their life to. Now this one, this one's a little bit of a a misunderstanding, uh, but it might be my favorite. So this might be my favorite. So I know that it's supposed to say unashamed with a cross. All I can see is tuna shamed, right? Anyone? And the question's like, who is shaming these tunas? What do they ever, (laughs) what do they ever do to you? Now, there's another one that I dislike uh, for very different reasons. Maybe you've seen it somewhere in your life, and it's this. Everything happens for a reason. Maybe you've seen that on a car, on a laptop. Maybe somebody with good intentions has said it to you. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why this one drives me a little crazy. Now, I've actually seen an alternative to this sticker, and it says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is you're dumb and make bad decisions, right? (laughs) That's... But I really do believe that often people, when they say this phrase, they have good intentions, right? But if you've ever been on the receiving end of words like that, you've likely not found it to be very helpful. When you're the one suffering, when you're the one going through difficulty, bumper sticker answers typically are not all that helpful. So today, I wanna actually wrestle with this question. How could a good God allow pain and suffering? How could a good, loving, powerful God allow pain and suffering? And the last thing I wanna do today is to offer bumper sticker answers. Now, I actually think this is one of the most difficult questions to grapple with because it's not just an intellectual question, it's also a deeply personal one. If you or anyone you know who has ever walked through a season of grief or sorrow or pain, or maybe you're in it right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And sometimes we ask this question because we just can't make sense of all the evil that we see in the world. I mean, do I need to convince anybody that the world can be a profoundly tragic place? I mean, look at what happened in Buffalo just yesterday. World is full of pain and sorrow and grief and evil. So let me say two things quickly. One, I know that my suffering pales in comparison to what some of you have walked through. I know that. 
I will not pretend that our suffering is the same, that I know what it is that you have gone through. But secondly, I also want you to know that I have a strong aversion to sanctimony and platitudes. I, I have a low tolerance for simplistic answers to complex realities. But we have a difficulty to do, I mean, we have a, a tendency to turn difficulties into formulas, don't we? When going through suffering, perhaps you've heard something like, if you just believe, blank. Or if you just do, blank. Or if you just remember, blank. I don't think there's, I don't think any important truth contains the word just in the punchline. If you just. So here's what we're not gonna do today. Uh, we're not gonna solve the issue of pain and suffering in the world. Not in the limited time that we have. I won't insult you and pretend that it's that simple. We're also not gonna minimize pain and suffering by offering simple platitudes like everything happens for a reason. I'm also not gonna tell you everything will get easier if you just have enough faith. Because many of us know that's just not how God works. What we are gonna do today is this, is to invite all of us to wrestle honestly with this question, to enter into a conversation that is open and honest. I believe that we, particularly in the West, desperately need a deeper theology of suffering because the question is not, will I suffer? To be human is to suffer, by the way. The question isn't, will I suffer? The question is, when I suffer, how will I suffer? When hardship comes my way, how will I navigate that? Now, Christians in particular shouldn't be surprised by suffering. In fact, the, the Bible is terribly matter-of-fact about pain and suffering. In probably his least popular promise, Jesus himself says this, in this world, you'll have trouble. You can see why it's unpopular for a reason, right? Like I've never seen this one needle stitched on a pillow in my life. Like nobody, <laughs> it's not a popular one. But the, the Bible is full of suffering. Here are a couple of examples. Uh, Psalm 13, King David was depressed. All of the book of Job, Job was hopeless. Ecclesiastes 2, King Solomon hated life. Jeremiah 15, Jeremiah wished he'd never been born. More than a third of the Psalms or what we call psalms of lament, of crying out to God. How could you let this happen? Did you lose track of me? What's going on here? In fact, we have a whole book called Lamentations. And every single prophet except for Haggai includes at least one lament in their book. I share all of this to say this. If the Bible doesn't hide the stories of suffering and grief, we don't have to either. If the Bible feels no need to like sweep those under the rug or sanitize those stories or say everything happens for a reason, we don't have to either. And I've learned in my life that God would rather we yell at him than walk away from him. Amen. He can handle your grief. He can handle your sorrow. He can even handle your anger. Personally, I've, I've been there. I've prayed that God would take things away that he has not taken away. I've been angry at God. I've doubted God. I've questioned God. And yes, I've even yelled at God. We've duked it out. He usually wins, but we've, we've, <laughs> we've done it. 
Now, some of us, we don't talk about our suffering because for some reason, it feels more holy to like bear it alone, right? To not burden other people with that. But the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, is very open about his suffering. And I would argue that none of us are more holy than him. Go read his letters. Read the New Testament. He's very open and honest about his suffering. He doesn't hide it. And so from Genesis to Revelation, throughout these stories of high highs and very low lows, the most common command in all of Scripture are these two words, fear not. And almost every time they're followed by these words, for I am with you. God doesn't always offer answers, but he does always offer his presence. He doesn't always give an explanation, but he always gives himself. And Psalm 34 tells us that he is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. And maybe that describes some of us today. Now, my guess is all of us, at some point in our life, we've been heartbroken. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in a way that I think is really helpful. And I'm, I'm intentionally not going to put it on the screen because I want you to actually just hear the humanity of these words. Second Corinthians 4, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Does anyone know like the song that goes with those passages? Maybe you even heard it like a melody as I was reading it. Those are the verses that we like to create into songs and poems, 2 Corinthians 4. And we've maybe all felt this. But just a few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians 1, here's what Paul writes. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. He's saying this was more than we could take. So that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. He's saying we weren't even sure if we wanted to keep going. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, we run to chapter four, right? Under pressure, but not crushed. At a loss, but not the end. Struck down, but not destroyed. In chapter one, there was a time that he actually did feel those things. He felt like he'd received the sentence of death. He felt hopeless and helpless. And if you feel that way today, you're not alone. You are in good company. Now, when people ask the question, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? The implication typically is that God should make a world where this stuff doesn't exist where there is no pain and suffering. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that's exactly what God did. All the way to the beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter one, we read this. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. The word good, there's the word tov. It's way more beautiful and enigmatic than just like, oh, that's good. It's like, oh, this is right and whole. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, God knew that if there was to be real love between him and the humans he created, he had to give people the freedom to choose. Love isn't really love unless it's chosen. Like, you remember those, uh, like those Woody dolls from Toy Story where you like pull the string and he's like, yee-haw, there's a snake in my boot. <laughs> that was not my best moment, I realized. <laughs> I think God 
could have made us that way, like robots, like dolls, that every time we, you know, he pulled the string, we would just go, I love you too, daddy. Like he could have, but would that have been love? No. And when these first humans reject God's way, this is what God asks. What is this you have done? What is this you have done? After that first fracturing, Adam and Eve, they run, they hide. And I think for a lot of us, we've been hiding ever since. And perhaps God is asking this question. What have you done? So much of our experience of suffering in the world is directly or indirectly the result of a choice that goes against God. Whenever a person is victimized by crime or war, somebody is going against God. Whenever a person is emotionally or physically or spiritually abused, someone is going against God. Whenever a person is abandoned and left fatherless, someone is going against God. When someone opens fire on innocent people, someone is going against God. And not only in these big dramatic areas, but when we backbite, when we slander, when we gossip, someone is going against God. But through his word, God has given us a picture of where the story is headed. In Revelation chapter 21, the, the opposite end, the very end of your Bible, God gives the apostle John a vision of what is to come, writing this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Bible, make no mistake of it, offers a whole lot more than just some spiritual afterlife. It offers the hope of the resurrection, of renewed creation, and a material world wiped clean of decay, suffering, and death. So again, I, I don't know what you're going through. But I do know this though, no matter how deep the pain you carry, it does not have the last word. Amen. No matter the weight and gravity of whatever it is that you're walking through, it does not have the last word. And from the moment that humans fractured God's dream in the world, he's been at work to restore it. Not by taking away human choice, by the way but by entering into the evil and suffering of our world, taking on human flesh and living and suffering among us. He died to take the punishment for our rebellion, came back to life proving that he has power over death, over evil and over suffering. That's the good news of the open tomb. Not just an afterlife with him in the future, but a hope in the present, reflecting on what God accomplished, the Apostle Peter writes these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's really good news for us today, right now. And yet, 
that still leaves us with this mess, doesn't it? A present world with a surplus, it seems at times, of pain and sorrow and suffering. A world full at times of evil and unexplainable suffering. How do we navigate any of this? I've said this before, Jesus accomplished a lot, of, a lot of things, but one of the things that I don't, I don't feel like it's taught enough is that he actually showed us what it means to be fully human. He's our savior and our Lord, but I believe he is also our example. So let's, let's look to Jesus for a minute as our example when it comes to suffering because he knows what it's like to suffer. A couple of examples, Mark chapter 14. In the garden before his arrest, he was deeply distressed and troubled. His soul was, quote, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Luke 22, his stress was so overwhelming that he literally shed drops of blood. His body was going into literal physical shock. Just a couple verses before that, he, he begged the father to save him from what he was going through. He wanted an escape. He wanted a different route. Maybe you can relate. And in Matthew 27, on the cross, he cried out in despair, feeling abandoned, experiencing the pain of the loss of his most treasured relationship. It wasn't just the physical pain of the crucifixion, nor was it even just taking on the sins of the world. It was feeling this distance from his most treasured relationship. Jesus knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, grief, torture, and pain, and he didn't numb himself to it. At no point do we see Jesus putting on a fake smile going, well, everything happens for a reason. So on the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. I fully believe that. But on the other hand, God comes into our world himself and actually suffers with us. Amen. No other religion claims that, by the way. No other religion wants to claim both a sovereign and suffering Lord. This is the theological foundation for why Christians can be so realistic and yet also so hopeful. Because in Jesus, this suffering savior, we discover that the goal of life is not earthly happiness, that even the most moral people suffer, and that it's okay to not be okay right now. To not have to put on that fake Christian smile. Some of us, we walk through those doors with a smile on our face, but with a devastated heart. The church should be the safest place on planet earth for us to be honest about our struggles. About our heartache, about our grief, about our pain. And yet somewhere along the line, we twisted it. Like this is the place you need to have it all together. I mean, the cross is a lot of things. And one of them is the freedom to say, I don't have it all together. Amen. I don't have to. I could never clean myself up enough to save myself. Church, it is time for us to stop pretending. And while Jesus' suffering does not answer the question, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? It does tell us what the answer is not. It can't be because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he doesn't care. Because all we have to do is look to the cross. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it this way. 
It can't be that God is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So no, I, I don't have easy answers for whatever it is that you're walking through or have walked through or will walk through. But I do know this, that Jesus identifies with us in our sufferings. And not only that, he invites us to bring our sorrow to him. He promises a future where there will be no more suffering, but he also offers us hope now, in the present. Not only did Jesus' death demonstrate that he is with us in our heartbreak, his resurrection gives us hope that our suffering does not have to be in vain. In a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he makes this astonishing claim. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that they may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and this incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He says that we can have hope in the present because the same power that rose Jesus from the grave resides in you. That you have access to every single one of us regardless of what you've done, left undone, or been done to you. The same power, the same Holy Spirit. We see glimpses of this resurrection all throughout our life and how God redeems our pain and works it for good. It does not mean, by the way, that we are grateful for tragedy. But by God's grace, it can shape us for good. This is why so many people, when they come out of addiction, when they've had some time to heal, they will often speak of their rock bottom moment with a strange amount of affection. Right, rock bottom, the thing that most of us spend our entire lives trying to avoid, to not hit rock bottom. Ask someone who's healed from an addiction why the rock bottom moment, why they can speak of that with some level of affection. It's because that's when I got to stop hiding. That's when I realized I wasn't actually in control and that's a gift to me. That's when I got to stop pretending there's a grace to us even in our most tragic circumstances. Because here's the truth, we can't evade suffering, but we can't evade joy. We can't avoid suffering. That's coming for us. What we can't avoid, what we can't evade is joy. And what happens to you does not have to define what happens in you. Things will happen to us, by the way. And for many of us, things are happening right now. What happens to you does not have to define what happens in you. Tim Keller again says this. Many people admit that most of what they really needed for success in life came to them through their most difficult and painful experiences. So I want to share with you a story. And it's a really difficult story, but it's also a deeply personal one. This is the story of my wife's family. And I want you to hear from my mother-in-law, Marion. Here's their story. Hi, my name is Marion, and I was born and raised in Chicago, still live there. And I'm also the founder of a ministry called Timothy's Ministry, which helps people who are struggling with homelessness in Chicago. So 
20 years ago. Um, my life was hard, I thought. My oldest son had been hit by a car and had sustained some injuries. That's when a neighbor of mine invited me to her ladies' Bible study. And when I went in that first night to that Bible study, um, I felt hope for the first time. And it wasn't necessarily what they were reading in the Bible, but it was the women in the room who were talking about God as though they really knew who God was. And that, in the midst of the struggles I was having, gave me hope because the thought that came to me was, wouldn't it be great to be able to actually access God, to be able to know for sure He's there, to have Him hear me. And I'm gonna tell you something, I felt something in that moment when I said, in Jesus' name. I felt as though there was an answer to prayer. I never felt anything like that before, like I knew God was listening. Uh, my oldest son, Tim, who had been hit by a car, had to go back into the hospital. I fell on my knees in the hallway of the hospital and I cried out to Jesus and just said, Jesus, I need you to take over my life. I can't do this. And I'm putting Tim in your arms. And every day I would pray in the name of Jesus. And then on the 10th day, suddenly Tim passed away. How could you have taken my son? Why would you do that? You could have taken anything, but not my child. You know, why would you take my child? But I found that God was able to let me know even as I would cry out, even raise my voice, even saying, you know, you couldn't even be a good God. How could you be a good God to take someone's child so I cried out to God and said, help me, Lord, how am I supposed to get up tomorrow morning? And then I just said to God, if only I could have just had the simple joy of baking Tim a birthday cake, what I would have given for that. And with that, as I just was talking to God, saying it, this thought came to me, maybe if I bake a cake for a homeless shelter, maybe that will get me out of bed. It was just this thought. So one call down to a homeless shelter, and I asked them, would you accept a birthday cake or cakes or baked goods if I bring them down tomorrow? The manager of the homeless shelter on the other end of the phone said, baked goods would be a godsend. Where'd you get our number? We're desperate here. And I said, oh, well, what do you need? And he said, oh, we could use baked goods, toiletries, clothing. We need everything. No one ever calls us here. I emailed those ladies in my Bible study because I knew their hearts, and it, it just so happened the next day, Tim's birthday landed on a Thursday, which was a Bible study. I told them about uh, this homeless shelter, and when I arrived the next day at the Bible study, there were piles and piles of clothing, toiletries, and baked goods, and they filled up my van. We drove down to the homeless shelter, and so we went in and visited, and they shared their story. They were in a place that they never planned to be. I was in a place that I had never planned to be. And at the end of that day, we, I suggested that we hold hands and have a circle of prayer. One young man, just maybe 19 years old, prayed that day and said, 
Lord, thank you for sending Marion here to us today. And even though you took her son, look at all the sons that you gave her today. And that was the beginning of what we now call Timothy's ministry. God answered that prayer the day before Tim's birthday of wishing to help me to get out of bed and wishing I could have baked him a birthday cake. I mean, I am so convinced and certain about the truth of what God says, that He brings good from all things for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. We can't get our own human brains around what that good is going to be. He's bringing something good that's going to help other people, but at the same time, He's lifting us up. I know from experience that regardless of what happens, that all things are possible with God. He brings good over and over and over and over from even the worst tragedy. Someone told me after Tim died, God brings good from all things. And I looked at her, and that was in the first six months, and I said, I will never call anything good that would come from Tim's death. I could never call anything good. I had no idea what she was talking about. But then God shows us what he's talking about. At Tim's one-year anniversary, one of his friends knocked on our door and just had come into town to pay his respects. And, I, and he had a Bible under his hand, and nobody we knew ever had Bibles, ever. So I said, what are you doing with the Bible? And he said, this is because of Tim. And I said, how is it because of Tim? And he said, three months before Tim died, we got together, and Tim told me that Jesus was his Lord and Savior. And I said, are you sure? He said those words, and he said, yeah. And then when I got the call, that he had passed away and I came out for the funeral, I kept thinking, my friend was trying to give me a code. What, was he, what did he mean by Jesus was his Lord and Savior? So he went back to college and he asked somebody on his floor who was a Christian, could you please tell me what my friend meant by Jesus was his Lord and Savior? And he said, the guy started showing him in the Bible. And the next thing you know, he surrendered his life to Jesus and God found a way to let me know for sure that was Tim, Tim was in heaven, other than just showing me in my heart. You see a miscarriage where infertility creates empathy for anyone who's ever gone through the same thing before. <laughs> Struggling with bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, or suicidal ideation softens your heart toward those who struggle with mental illness. Living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck softens your heart towards those who struggle financially. Going through chemo or a gauntlet of inconsequential diagnoses carves out care for those who are going through the same thing. And losing a child it 
Pleasing a child produces compassion for anyone else who has ever walked that unthinkable road. And two decades later, by the way, thousands of men and women struggling with homelessness have experienced the presence of Jesus because of what God is doing through Marion. Thousands. There is a solidarity that suffering can produce within us that draws compassion out of us like nothing else can. And in at least that way, suffering can be redemptive. In my experience, suffering can either break us or it can break us open. It can break us or it can break us open to the possibilities what God wants to do in the world. I heard a pastor years ago and he said, he said, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. I know so many of you know this way better than I do, but it's actually in the desert seasons that the roots go down deepest. Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. We can find joy not in the pain of the strike, but the depth of its effect. And here's, here's what I believe and have experienced. That the most painful part of your story might be the most life-giving part of someone else's. Some of you, my guess is you're here right now because someone shared with you the pain of theirs. My challenge to us would be don't, don't just bear your suffering, use it. Don't just endure it. Ask God by the power of his spirit to use it in the world. Suffering can create in us the instinct to say, I have been there, I know how this feels, how can I help? I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't even know what God wants to bring from it. But for anyone doubting that God can bring good from whatever it is that you're dealing with or facing, you're carrying, let these words from Romans 8 encourage us today. That we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. No amount of good theology takes away the pain of suffering. God's sovereignty doesn't take away the pain, but it does work it for good. So no, I don't, I don't know that I believe that everything happens for a reason, but God can take everything that happens and bring something beautiful from it. Whatever you're carrying, whatever your burden, when we place our hope in Jesus, when we not just pray a prayer, but put our hope and trust and allegiance in him. He promises to bring good even from the terrible things that come our way. And yes, Jesus did say, in this world, you will have trouble. But what he said right before that and right after that, I think is even more beautiful. Jesus says, 
I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you're gonna have trouble but take heart church take heart brothers and sisters I have overcome the world Amen. that word overcome in the Greek is in the perfect tense, which means both right now and future. It's both current and ongoing. Jesus is saying, I have won a decisive victory over the cause of everything that gives you trouble, whatever that is. He wins. He's already won. And I believe that the gospel is more real and on display when we are broken than at any other time. I believe when we're honest about our suffering, a looking world says, how in the world do you still have hope? How in the world can you still find joy in these ashes? The gospel is more real and on display when we are broken than I think any other time. So I want to wrap up. First, by speaking to those who are suffering today, who are heartbroken. It was maybe everything you could do to even get out of bed this morning. I do not know why what happened to you happened. And please forgive me for ever offering bumper sticker sayings to your pain. I don't know what you were going through, I don't know what has broken your heart, but I do know this, that Jesus knows your pain and invites you to bring it to him, to trust him. Not an idea or a construct or a denomination or a philosophy, but the person of Jesus. He loves you, he is for you, and he is with you even in the valley. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. And for those who maybe never actually truly trusted Jesus, maybe you've done the church thing, the Christian thing, the religious thing for a while, but like in your heart of hearts, you know that trust is not the word you would use to describe it. I wanna issue you a challenge. It's called Pascal's Wager. Now, Blaise Pascal was a 17th century intellectual who grew up knowing a lot about God, but never really following God. And in this like profound middle of the night experience, everything changed for him. And he began inviting others to experience the same thing. He challenged his fellow intellectuals to a wager. And he said this, make a bet that there is a God who loves you. If you're right, you have everything to gain. And if you're wrong, you have nothing to lose. Make a bet that God is real. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be as blunt as I can. This week, in whatever pain or sorrow or struggle you're bringing to this moment here, I wanna challenge you to pray a very simple prayer every day, multiple times every day if you have to. To simply pray this prayer, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. God, if you're real, I don't know that you are, I don't know that I buy any of this. God, if you are real, make yourself real to me, invite God to reveal himself to you in whatever it is that you're facing. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose, friends. And then lastly, for those not suffering, maybe today you're thinking, my, my week, my month, my years is going, it's going pretty great right now. Let me say this. 
We do not love others in the midst of pain by pretending that it isn't all that bad or trying to quickly fix it. We live with the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we also, we weep with those who weep. We are present with people in their pain. Why? Because platitudes can't hold a candle to presence. No amount of sanctimony or bumper stickers holds a candle to simply saying, I am, I am with you in the midst of this. I will grieve with you. I will hold your hand. I'll sit in silence and simply be here with you. Church, may we learn to sit with others in their pain and not try to quickly excuse it away, to let go of the need to explain it all the time. To be silent together, to cry with one another, to mourn with one another, and to pray for one another. So that's exactly what we're going to do right now. And I recognize that this, this might be really uncomfortable for some of us. I'm just going to go for it. If you're here today in Spring Hill, in Columbia, or online, if you are walking through something, carrying something, grieving something, and you would like prayer right now in this moment, I'm going to invite you to stand up wherever you're at. Right now, wherever you're at, stand up in your row, at your chair. Online, we're going to have a private chat. There'll be a link in the chat that you can go to right now. All across this room in Columbia, if you're grieving, if you're suffering, if you're in pain, would you just, would you just stand up, please? Just stand up wherever you're at. This is the church, friends. It's not putting out a smile when our heart is broken. It's not pretending things are better than they're not. If the cross is anything, it's the declaration that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to always have all the answers. If you've not stood and you want to, this is your moment. Stand wherever you're at. We won't ask you to disclose anything if you don't want to, but here's what I'd like for us to do. The rest of us, I want you to look around the room. And right now, I want you to go to someone who's standing up. Go surround them, put your hands on them if they're comfortable with it. And we're gonna go before God together. We're gonna weep with those who weep, even and especially if we don't have any answers. You can start praying right now as I'm talking. Please continue praying as we sing these next songs together. Let's do battle together. Let's bear one another's burdens as God invites us. Let's be with each other in our suffering. Because friends, I have faith that our grief is actually holy to God. I have faith that Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend and he cried tears as salty as our own. And yes, I have faith that in an eternal sense that death has no permanent sting to it, even if it stings right now. And that when we're faced with the nothingness of pain and suffering and death, we are closest to the resurrection. That while it is still dark, God does his most wondrous work. And I have no idea why that is. Death might be the enemy, but it cannot defeat 
the gospel. The resistance is winning, friends. Nothing can stop it. And while it still may be dark in your life, light is breaking through and the darkness cannot, will not, shall not overcome it. No matter how downcast your soul might be, we can put our hope in God. So let me pray for us and please continue praying and here in Columbia online, continue praying as long as you like. Let's go before the Lord together as one body, as one church. God, I cannot even imagine the pain that so many sisters and brothers are carrying right now, but you can. God, forgive us for simplistic answers, for empty platitudes, God. Help us to bring even this to you, to stop pretending, to stop trying to bear it on our own, God. Meet us in our pain. Remind us that you are a God who is both sovereign but also suffers with his people. Help us to trust you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time, God. Help us to trust you with our pain, God. And may we as a body bear one another's burdens together. We thank you, God, and we love you. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at bridgechurchtn. Thanks again for listening.